My name is Jeff Harbach. I'm the CEO of Coffin Fellows and the host of the Coffin Fellows podcast. This season, our podcast is produced in partnership with Mighty Capital and features different Coffin Fellows as co-hosts. In this podcast, we dive deep into the personal narratives of some of the most successful names in the venture capital industry, but we're not here just to explore their highlight reels, however impressive they are. From failures and formative learning experiences to inflection points and aha moments, we discuss the real, authentic journeys that each individual goes through to become the best version of themselves in order to best serve the entrepreneurs they invest in. Covering various themes in venture capital investing, we speak with the world's top leaders in capital formation, all from a place of authenticity and vulnerability. Together, we'll unravel what truly makes a great venture capital investor. Now let's meet today's host and their guest. Hi, I'm Code Cubit, founding partner of Mistral Venture Partners, and I'm excited to host a series on building an enduring investment firm. Let's hear from my guest today. First, let me say thank you for taking the time. Chuck, maybe I, if you wouldn't mind, I'd just love to understand the beginning. I mean, you, you started with a BA in English literature. I'm, I'm curious to know how you came to be an investor and how you, I'm going to say fell in love, but sort of switched paths. Well, I initially wanted to be a warrior because I was in special ops, 101st Airborne. I did the reconnaissance of Hamburger Hill. Mm-hmm and then write the great American novel. But of course, the problem is, in those days, being in special ops meant you're out of a job by the time you're 36. And they wouldn't promote you beyond a colonel, Frank, because they figured you were too weird, and they wanted guys who fought tank battles in um, you know, the French countryside. Of course, the whole concept of war has now changed, and the, they want the special ops people to be have significant responsibilities. But my father had been a venture capitalist. He started in 1945 with Lawrence Rockefeller. During World War II, father was the czar of fighter aircraft. He was very knowledgeable about that. And he would decide the allocation. He would, you know, watch the development, the production and allocation of fighter aircraft. So he'd have to get on the phone with um, MacArthur and um, Eisenhower and just tell them who got what. The war was winding down. Lawrence Rockefeller decided that he wanted to create the aerospace industry. And who would be better qualified to do that than Mr. Rocket, my father? And so he hired father, and father really participated in the founding of companies. Can you see this? Absolutely. The Concord. That's the uh, Bell X-1. Chuck Yeager used it to break the sound barrier. And of course, it led to the uh, creation of the Concord, which my father was invited to fly to England. It was 60 people that were most important in the rocketry industry. Amazing. That's really disruptive technology at the time, for sure. So father was involved with all sorts of companies like Thermoelectron, Hitech, Marquardt Aircraft that Lawrence had started. Towards the end of his career, it became evident that uh, aerospace was not going to be the focus of Lawrence's. And so my father stayed on as a consultant for many years, but really wound down the portfolio of aerospace companies. So I got to know Werner von Braun and uh, Chuck Yeager and all these people. 
I grew up in the company of entrepreneurs. Got it. That's that's a very clear beginning. Incredible. Lawrence Rockefeller gave me advice. General Dorio's first two companies uh, that went public were my father's companies. And I knew the venture capital, everybody in the industry. And so um, my uh, first paper, my Harvard Business School thesis was something like venture capital and its role in creating the American economy. And I started NEA. I was hired by T. Rowe Price to get them into the venture capital business. But the bubble burst. You had the energy crisis, and T. Rowe couldn't put them. They needed all the money to uh, retire partners for paper. I was fortunate to know Frank Bonsell, who was my first wife's cousin. We had worked together when I was at the New Horizons Fund, running a section of the New Horizons Fund at Tiro. And then I also knew Dick Cramlick because Cub Harvey, the head of the new Tiro, and then initially my boss at the New Horizons Fund, had introduced me to Dick. And we worked together on public companies. So in the spring of uh, 1997, or 1977, I think. Seven. Yeah. We started marketing and we closed the fund, 16 and a half million in June of 78. And we said right now, we wrote a paper about what we wanted to do. And we said we wanted to become a hundred year partnership and we wanted to be whole a position in the venture capital business that Morgan Stanley held, or JP Morgan and Company held in the investment banking business in 1906. It's really interesting that you said that. That's something I really wanted to probe on because it's extremely deliberate to assert upfront that you wanna be a hundred year firm means you make decisions differently. Most funds today, you know, I, myself included, was I wanna get a fund, I wanna get off the ground. And then and now I want a second fund. And then you start thinking maybe one or two funds ahead, but you started with this very deliberate mission to do a hundred year fund. I started thinking about NEA 10 when we started NEA 1. And so how does that influence how you build the team and the decisions you make? Because there clearly can't be short-term decisions. Well, for one thing, you've got to build an exceptional team, which means you give up your carried interest to partners that are joining. By NEA 3, the founders only had 30% of the carried interest. Between the three of you? Mm-hmm. Wow. And 70% was given to attract people. And we attracted superstars. And I have a whole bunch of thoughts and the merits of that. But by doing this, we created a very long-term orientation. So initially, the partnership was a flat partnership. All general partners had an equal carry. We then moved to giving the managing general partner a premium of 20%. And that, of course, was Dick Cramlin. Mm -hmm. And then we started having these billion-dollar outcomes. And so we had to include a bonus paid in, you know, stock or cash at the time the realization of the gains. 
Would the bonus go to the partner who sourced the deal or worked on it, or was it a kind of a flat structure there as well? It would go to the partner that sat on the board of the company, which I think is a big mistake. I think it should have gone to predominantly the partner that sat on the board, but also to the person that originated the deal and also people who made a really significant contribution. So when Peter Barris started UUNet, which was 70% of the traffic on the internet, Mm -hmm. they became Juniper's largest customer and they entirely made Juniper. So in that case, Peter should have been given some of the credit for Juniper. But we didn't do that. And as a result, I think things got sort of skewed to people wanting to get the board seat above everything else. And that wasn't necessarily the best way to run a project. That's really insightful. And so obviously a, a spirit or culture of sharing, carry, and alignment on those things how did you deal with partners who came and then didn't perform? Would they be shown the door? How do you think that through? Poorly. <laughs> we initially had a vesting schedule, which I put in, of like 12 years. And then one of our partners, Neil Bond, who came from T. Rowe, said, that's ridiculous. It has to be four years. And against Dick and my objections, it was made four years, which was a catastrophe because we ended up giving half the capital gains in the first five partnerships to people who had left the firm because, you know, we moved them out. And so it went back to the 12-year vesting schedule. And that really changes people's behavior. Yeah. We had a philosophy that each generation that runs the firm should make more than the generation before them which was reflected by how we divided the carry. Later on, we created the management company, which was people who'd been with the firm 20 years, the loss of whom would be um, disastrous for the firm. And they got 16% of the carry, that entity, plus a a small percentage of the fee. The management company became unwieldy because we decided to put a value on it. And then the existing members of the management company would buy out the retirees. That isn't the way, when Frank retired, I just gave him percentage of partnerships, six, seven, and eight that declined. Mm -hmm. The management company with debt was a disaster because by the fourth generation, the young people would be assuming billion dollars of debt. So Scott Sandell basically got in an outside investor to buy like 20% of the firm, which was, in essence, the management company. And now they've gone to giving retiring partners a continuing interest because we wanted to make partnerships incentive systems or, you know, you build a partnership, you liquidate it, and you go on. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not a long, so we wanted to make, turn a partnership into a corporation. And by doing the management company, we gave the founding partners or the early partners or later partners a chance to have a profits interest in the firm in its ongoing form. 
Got it. And I assume that a lot of this was formed over years and years. I, I remember one interview where you said initially that on your first fund, you called all the capital up front and that dramatically impacted your IRR. So I'm sure there's lots of lessons learned in that regard. Oh, yeah, millions. And, you know, we made about every mistake it's possible <laughs> to make in the book. Now, the other thing we did is we established a career path. If you joined uh, the partnership, you had to produce what started out at $100 million of gains. It's now much more than that before you could be made a general partner. And it really went out that you had to be, you had a career path for 10 years that was outlined in six levels, you know, associate, blah, 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 Mm -hmm. partner, general partner, management committee. They all had criteria or goals that you had to make. Once Samir, you met with your two sponsors in the general partner group, and they would discuss your progress on how you were achieving goals and what you could do to improve. And that discussion occurred every year. So each partner in the firm knew how they were progressing towards becoming a general partner and eventually a member of the management company. That actually was suggested to us by our young partners, and we acted on it. The other thing we did is so many, now, I think Axel, Jim Schwartz, and Arthur Patterson probably kept 60 to 70% of the carry until partnership 10, to put it in perspective. Right. I'm not singling them out because I think they did an extraordinarily good job. Our partnership was focused totally on capital gains. Our fees were about 1% in striking contracts. What deteriorates the limited partner's rate of return most? The carried interest, the fee, or having recovering capital first? I think it's probably the fees. Fees deteriorated 70%. Wow. Timing of recovering fees, whether you have to recover all of contributed capital or only what you've invested, is another 27%. (laughs) Carried interest is 3%. Because in our partnerships, you weren't getting into carry until year 10, because we were all early stage. You know, any is rated as a late stage venture fund. That's because $8 of every dollar we invest in a startup goes into follow-ups. So we're the largest startup firm in the world. Right. The other thing that a lot of firms didn't do was they didn't give the platform to the younger partners. Now, at every partnership annual meeting, our younger partners delivered about 85% of the presentation. And we figured that every younger partner had to know the philosophy of the firm. So we would have about 20 or 30 partners meetings where we discussed how we were living up to the philosophy of the firm, which was to create real companies, generate extraordinary returns, and build an enduring organization. And so we sort of brainwashed. It became a very self-selecting process because we tell all this to people, and a lot of people would have no interest in joining a firm like that. 
we tried to pre-screen and eliminate people that wanted to get rich quick. And we had the younger partners rehearse. Every younger partner could give a presentation similar to the partnership that the managing general partner could give. So they had to understand the firm's philosophy, how each company was making that philosophy come true. Or, and we did have a, a lot of partners that left. Most of them we eased out. Mm -hmm. I don't think, at least during my tenure, we had a partner leave because they wanted to go get a better spot in another type of firm. That's a testament. And I would say we would lose 60, 70% partners over a partnership slice because they just didn't fit in. So is that rigorous partner reshuffling based on performance or cultural fit? Uh, both. There had to be a cultural fit and there had to be a level of performance. And if it's a 10-year cycle, how do you assess those? How do you assess performance in the interim? Qualitatively, but you really can't assess performance until about year seven. Right. Because you have to start generating real gains. And that takes, as you know, from a startup business, it takes a long term. Yeah. Shifting gears a little bit, in the, in the late 90s, you shifted from 100, 200, 300 million dollar funds to billion dollar funds. Why? Yeah, kind of why and how is, is maybe the... Well, we all, the other thing we had is we had a real board of directors consisting of our largest limited partners. They had to review our salaries. We paid our, our, ourselves hire and fire decisions. They had real teeth. Peter Barris initially, or eventually removed that, which I felt was a big mistake because everybody needs a board mm -hmm. to um, provide governance, advice, help, which our board was invaluable. And we had one board member, Tom Judge, and we had been making some really bad mistakes. We were participating in the A and B rounds and foregoing the C, D, and E rounds. We should have invested when we had a good company in the C, D, and E rounds. Instead of getting a gain of 30 million, we would have gotten a gain of 500 million. And so we said, how can we participate in the CD&E rounds? And Tom Judge came up, one of our uh, AT&T limited partners. He said, you really need to evolve into a, from a startup firm, retain your focus in startups, but develop a real competence in venture growth equity, which are the, the CDE and F rounds, which we did. But in order to do that, you had to have big funds. So we, at the encouragement of our limited partners, increased our fund size. Got it. And did that change? So that's more money in existing companies that are doing well. Does it change the size of the organization? Oh, yeah. Dramatically. Now, the firm is split into raising the startup fund and then a venture growth equity firm. So they have, NEA is now raising a $3 billion startup fund and a four-plus billion venture growth equity. In a sense, separating the two, yeah. And I don't know what, I tend to prefer tying everything to one fund. I mean, so you don't have any potential conflicts of interest. Yeah, that's a, that's a big topic in this business for sure, because there's a lot at stake. 
we never allowed general partners to invest in private companies. We have that provision as well, just to make sure that you're focused on the right thing. Chuck, when you started, you know, you, you call it venture capital in the 40s, in the 50s and 60s, but but it didn't look like it does today at all. The legal no, 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 you're wrong. Okay. Go back to 1880. Okay. Well, if you really want to go back, uh, there's a Colin Blanton and um, uh, Dartmouth. And the Phoenicians had venture capital partnerships when they launched their exploration voyages. You'd have a syndicate put up 80% or put up all the money, but the captain and the crew got 20% of the gains from the profit. And the agreement is somewhat similar to a venture capital agreement today. Then you go up to Ferdinand Isabella and uh, Columbus, yeah. same deal. You go to Marco Polo, and then you go to the English merchant banks that created the railroads. And then you go to Andrew Mellon in 1890, startup. He put about 200,000 and owned about 90% of Gulf oil, general reinsurance, and alcohol aluminum from seed investments. And then you can go to a whole bunch of other firms, the Rockefellers, the Whitney's, the Bessemer started in 1906. Yep. Rockefeller started in 1938 with Schroeder Rockefeller Partnership that eventually turned into Lawrence Rockefeller and Associates and is now called Benrock. F- totally fair point. I, I stand corrected. I think the, the observation, though, is that as a career path, as a industry, it's matured a lot over your tenure. And I think, you know, you had a big role to play in that. I describe this in a book called Dare Disturb the Universe, which I will publish in September. Excellent. Which talks about my family's, what it will be if the boys keep going till 2045, we'll have had 100 years in the venture industry. We now have 70. Thank you, Chuck. I I wish you a a terrific weekend, and I, I hope we get to interact again. Absolutely. Fun to talk to you. Take care now. Bye for now. That's a wrap. Tune in next week for another candid conversation on what makes a great VC investor with your host, the Kaufman Fellows. 